0: I have a really cool object lesson this week. I can hardly wait to show you guys, but I'm not going to show you yet. It's a secret for now. Ha ha ha. Yeah. It's it's from the Ephesians passage. Uh, I actually heard a statistic that 80% of sermons are based on the Pauline epistles, like Paul's letters. And you know, if you go to a church sometime, listen, mo- a lot of sermons are based on Paul's letters. It's, it's no surprise. Like, he's so Yeshua-centered. His writings are so rich. Um, it's kind of like... It's a no-brainer if you just want some really, like, kind of ready-made sermon material. But if you want some challenging sermon material, go to Leviticus. Did you notice not a lot of sermons are are preached out of Leviticus? Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, we were were talking a couple weeks ago about Rob Bell's church, Mars Hill Bible Church. And I'm not saying I agree agree with him theologically, but it's interesting that when they started, um, his first sermon series was on Leviticus, And they stayed in Leviticus for over a year, and they went from like, they went to like 800 people in their church, because, you know, people were just hungry to understand the foundational books of Scripture. It's stuff that doesn't get a lot of airtime, hey? So, you know, it would be really tempting to just jump right to Ephesians and the cool object lesson I have, but we're going to look at Leviticus first, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's go deep with that. So if you want to turn to Leviticus 18. Um, let's, let's look at... Actually, I'm going to read you a verse from the book of Acts, chapter 27, first. Um, something I love is how, you know, when you read the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, with a uh, with heart to understand the connection between it and the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, like it just comes alive. Eh? It actually makes sense. I'm going to give you an example. Of how you need to read the book of Acts, for instance, in context. Acts 27 verse nine. It's like uh, it's Luke's travel journal of him and Paul and uh, their adventures, um, including a big shipwreck scenario and stuff. Anyway, it says when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. So um, they were at sea. They were they were making a sea journey, and uh, it was late in the year already. It was almost winter. And, um, and as a result, Paul says, guys, I don't think we should take this trip. Um, it, it, you know, it, it could result in a disaster. And uh, the, the captain decided to take the trip, and it did end in disaster, as I'm sure you all know. But did you notice here it says, even the fast was already over. What fast was that? That's right. See, that's an example of how you need to read the New Testament in its Jewish context, or it doesn't make sense. Um, for most of us, we would be like, the fast, uh, what, what, what is that? Were they fasting because they were kind of scared about their going on the voyage? No. Um, the fast is the Hebrew idiom for Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur is what in English? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, that's right. And uh, our, our, our reading from the Pentateuch this week is uh, it describes this elaborate ritual that the high priest would go through on the Day of Atonement. And I'm not going to go into too much detail on that, because then we'd have nothing to talk about when we're actually doing the Day of Atonement this year. So we'll look at this chapter in depth then. Um, But for now, I just wanted to point out that in the Jewish world, Yom Kippur is called the fast, because it's a day when you fast. And um, it appears that Paul and his team, including Luke's, Luke, uh, observe the Day of Atonement. Um, there are a couple of reasons we could, we could, we could conclude that based on. Uh, firstly, he actually mentions it. He calls it the fast. Um, if these guys were like, that's Old Covenant, we don't, we don't touch that stuff anymore, irrelevant, then he wouldn't have mentioned this. Obviously, the fast, i.e. the Day of Atonement, was something that Luke had on his in his daytimer. It's something. It was something on their travel journal. Um, you know, if they were in the land of Israel, maybe you could say, well, they just he just referenced that because the whole country grinds to a halt and nobody does anything for the whole day. But they weren't in Israel. They were actually on the road. They were traveling, so they were outside of a Jewish community, which means that they must have taken this must have been a, a practice that they did for themselves. So that's something to take note of. Let's, uh, let's, let's look at what the Bible says about Yom Kippur, the, uh, the Day of Atonement. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just look at the end here. It, it gives a couple of practical details. Uh, Leviticus sixteen twenty nine. it says, This shall be a, uh, a law forever, a permanent statute for you. And then it says, okay, in the seventh month, that's like in September, October on the biblical calendar, right? On the tenth day of the month, uh, humble your souls and don't do any work. So uh, that term there, humble your souls, has been understood to mean fasting. So like every year, you know, in my family, we, we fast from, we don't eat or drink anything for the, like about 25-hour block of time. And it's just a time of soul-searching before God. It's a time to remember that Yeshua died from my sins. And that that is serious, you know? It's like if Yeshua died from my sins, then I'm going to be serious about making sure I'm right with him in response. Some things like that. So, you know, we read some of these passages, we do some soul searching, uh, maybe do some repenting, if we have to make stuff right with God and other people. That's the idea there. Uh, you'll notice here, though, that he says it's a, uh, the Hebrew there is a hok olam. A hoke is like a law, and olam is forever. It's eternal, it's everlasting. So does that mean, does that sound like God was saying Yom Kippur is temporary until Messiah comes? Does it sound like God saying this is something for a specific dispensation and then once the age of grace comes and the church age, then this isn't for my people anymore? No. God said this is, this is forever. It's kind of weird that the stuff that God says is forever is the stuff that we say, ah that's temporary. ah that's done away with now. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I want to read the Bible. I want to believe the Bible, right? So, like, when I read through the Bible, I'm like, wait a minute. If God says this is forever, maybe he was serious. Anyway, um... That's, that's, that's one example from this He, he, he goes on um, To say In verse 34 Now um, Have this as a, a law forever He uses the same term A law forever To make atonement For the people of Israel For all their sins Once every year So it's actually It's a really special day It's like the most special day On, on God's calendar And uh, if you've never observed Yom Kippur before I, I highly recommend it um, Our flesh hates, hates fasting Really we will come up with all sorts of theological reasons to not fast on Yom Kippur because our flesh hates fasting. And if for any reason other than that you should do it just because your flesh won't like it and because it'll be good for you spiritually. You know what I'm saying? It is definitely Shabbat. So, you know, if, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're able to I would encourage you, uh, you know, look at, your day, look at um, the biblical calendar um, put it in your day timer, plan ahead see if you can get the day off work. I, I guarantee you it'll be a very worthwhile experience. Like Yeshua's atonement will come to mean more to you when you fast for 24 hours and just focus on Him. Very powerful. So it's conducive to spiritual depth. I think it's a way that we can tell Him we love Him. Um, So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that chapter more on Yom Kippur this fall. Um, Leviticus chapter 17, he gives some instructions about doing sacrifices. Like the people of Israel were doing sacrifices basically wherever they wanted to. It was kind of a free-for-all. And you know, maybe they'd be doing it to Yahweh, the God of Israel, or maybe they would be doing it for some other God. And we have a God who's really jealous over us as a people. Like he's passionate for us, right? He's committed to us. And so he, he, he... his heart cries out for us to be committed to him also. And you can totally hear his jealous heartbeat coming through in this passage. He's like, stop sacrificing to all these other gods and stuff. And uh, that's, that's the heartbeat of Leviticus 17. Um, Leviticus, uh, there's one interesting verse in here that Paul builds something of a theology on. Uh, maybe we can, we can uh, go down that road for a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, this is a, Paul's talking about like whether it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. It was like one of the raging debates in the early church, in the first century messianic community. Hey? And, um, and he really weighs in. He, he, he gives both perspectives in First Corinthians 10. But then this is how he concludes uh, about eating stuff sacrificed to idols. He says... Um, what what do I mean then? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. What do I mean then that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You can't drink the cup of the master and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the master and the table of demons. So Paul's, Paul is saying here that like, when we give our lives to anything other than the one true God, when we worship any, anything other than him, like we're actually giving our allegiance to a dark spirit behind that thing. Uh, I think especially when it comes to hardcore idolatry. Where, where did Paul get this idea from, though, that you know people who are involved in other religions are actually worshipping demonic entities? Uh, he got it out of this, this Torah portion, out of the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 17... Verse 17, um, there isn't verse 17. How about verse 7? Yeah, that, look, that works better. Leviticus 17, 17, he says, They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. So um, that's, the, that's the verse right there that Paul got this idea from. I really love that. I, re- I love reading the apostles and then tracing where they get their theology from in the Hebrew Bible. So um, the Hebrew term there is sirim for goat demons. Everybody say sirim. And it means like goats, basically. So I don't know. There's something about demons that is somehow goatish or something. I don't know. Have you ever looked in a goat's eyes? They're kind of freaky. I like eyes. You know what I mean, Lennon? It's like they have these like strange little rectangular eyes. And I like goats. They're cute and cuddly and I like to pet them. But their eyes are just a little bit freaky, you know? Yeah, make good cheese, yeah. I think the demon Azazel, uh, the face of Azazel is like a goat with goat horns. And it's one of the main demons. Yeah, I've, I've heard that concept also. So what we can learn from this passage is worship Yahweh. And like if people are serving other stuff, they may actually be like worshiping a demon and preach the gospel to them, bring them to God, the God of Israel who created the universe. It's our mission, right? On, on the planet. Um, that would include all those cute things like little leprechauns that people put through the door. Oh man, yeah, sure. There, there's, there, there are all kinds of little ways that superstition and idolatry and paganism have worked their way into our Western culture. It's kind of Western culture is interesting. It's basically this big mix between, well, it used to be between like a Judeo-Christian heritage and like pagan stuff, a lot of Greco-Roman pagan stuff. And then now we kind of have our third element of like secularism, you know. So uh, the Western world is very fascinating in in, in that regard. Um, Here's a concern that I'll, I'll share with you. Like last Shabbat, we read about how Nadab and Abihu, they tried to worship God in their own way. He said, Okay, you guys, like, when you come to me, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. He gave really clear instructions and evidence which suggests that they were probably drinking alcohol and they were probably, like, somewhat hammered when they went to do their priestly job and um, they just kind of made something up and, like, God killed them for it. And, and that's kind of hard, you know? It's like, wow, God killed these guys because they didn't do it His way. Um, here's how I would look at that. like, I have a friend who is an electrician, and he works with high-voltage electricity, like 20,000 volts, things like that, eh? Like, things where if you touch it, you disappear instantaneously. And um, let me ask you, like, when he approaches a high-voltage area, let's say behind chain-link fences with the big transformer boxes, what, what do you think the chances are he would go in there and do that drunk? You know, it's like, oh, missed that one. Oh, that was the wrong cable. Like, you know, um, you just, you have respect for high voltage. And the scripture says that Elohim, God is like a consuming fire. He's like all the voltage in the universe times infinity, you know. And so, like, there's this side to him where he's, he's warm and he's cuddly and he's loving and we can climb up on his lap and he holds us. And I love that about him, you know? Just like a, a dad and his daughter or son, little daughter or son. But there's this other side to him where he's holy and he's high voltage and he's dangerous and you don't just kind of do whatever you want with him because you could blow up or something. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of the, that's kind of the idea. So that's what happened last week to Nadab and Abihu. And um, here's an honest concern of mine. Sometimes... I wonder, like, in, in the believing community today, I wonder if we haven't made up some of our own ways of worshipping him. You know, sometimes we throw stuff out that he said for us to do, like forms of worship, and we kind of make up our own things. Like, I, I'm going to give you an example. This is just something I'm considering, right? Like, um, you know, I'm part of the ministerial here in PA. I love the Christian community here. I love, I love my fellow pastors. And uh, this is like a big Lent season, right? And... um like Lent is a, is a pretty big deal. And I just wonder, like, wh- why do we throw things like Yom Kippur away that God said are for his people forever and we do things like Lent that, I don't know, aren't in the Bible? I mean, if it's meaningful to people, that's cool. And I'm not judging them for that. But I just, I kind of feel like maybe we're out of balance in some areas. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Constantine, Roman emperor, he, you know, he, he basically made Christianity the state religion. He really messed it up. And he brought in. He kind of he brought in a lot of things that weren't biblical, to put it to put it kindly. No, I mean like even here. Consider this. Like, what's the name of the day when we you know we as like the broader Christian community celebrate Yeshua's resurrection from the dead? Say that again. What's the name of the day when? Yeah, Easter. But like just. Yeah. Right. Like I'm giving you a really simple example, but how did like Easter, Easter is like the name of a Babylonian fertility goddess, okay? How did that get into like the Christian calendar? Like, like Yeshua's resurrection is a marvelous thing. I celebrate it every day, and I want to celebrate it especially in the Passover season. But how did we end up calling it Easter? Like, I, yeah, right. I just I just think like God is calling us to like cut with that stuff. And, like, go back to the Bible and doing things biblically, eh? So that, that's, that's my sense. Well, like God bless him. I, I have a friend in Saskatoon uh, who's, a, who's a pastor of a Mennonite Brethren Church. They're a radical Mennonite Brethren Church. They, they do house church. They've done house church. They have a flag of Israel. They, they love Israel. They, they celebrate Passover and things. How's that for a Mennonite Church? Isn't that cool? And uh, I, I, his name is Terry. I just, I love Terry. He's, he's one of the warmest people. And um, when he actually started doing some of his history study, like, he was like, how did the day that we celebrate Messiah's resurrection come to be called Easter? That's wrong. So they call it Messiah, Messiah's Resurrection Sunday now in their <laughs> church. You know, and I just think, you know, that's, that's really cool. God bless him for that. Yeah. For sure, but I mean, you know, if you take it to the next step and you just go back to doing Passover like Yeshua did, and plugging into first fruits, which is all about Messiah's resurrection, you kind of get the original thing, eh? Yeah. So let's uh, let, let's there's 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 some more verses like that. If we want to look at uh, Leviticus chapter eighteen, this is a this is a very fun chapter. Um, it, here here's something in the beginning in verse three. He says. Um, don't do what's done in the land of Egypt where you lived. And don't do, don't do what's done in the land of Canaan where you're going. Don't walk in their laws. Uh, perform my judgments and keep my laws to live in accord with them. I'm Yahweh your God. So uh, you shall keep my laws and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I'm Yahweh. So uh, I, I, I hear that not only is a call to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, but that's a call, that was a call to the early Yeshua movement, the early church. Uh, that was, that's a call to us today. Um, how could we... You know, when you look at the early Yeshua movement, like in the first century, they were, they were leaving an Egypt of religious bondage. You know, that was something that Paul really dug in against and fought against, wasn't it? Um, they were going out into the world to bring the gospel, a, a world that was steeped in paganism. And you can just hear these, these early verses in Leviticus 18 like ringing in the ears of the apostles as they went out to the nations to preach the gospel. And uh, they're ringing in our ears too, eh? So that, that, that's a real call. It's like, walk away from religious bondage, like, fight for the freedom you have in Messiah, and at the same time, don't go overboard and begin to compromise and get into a bunch of paganism. Can you hear it? There's the tension. Egypt behind you, Canaan in front of you, Stay clear of both of them. You know, stay true to the mission. Don't compromise. is is kind of what I what, what I hear him saying there. And then I love that in verse five too. Um, he says, "So like keep my laws and my judgments by which um, the word there's Adam. It means a human being, male and female both. By which Adam may live if he does them. I'm Yahweh. Um, let me ask you, how, how many of you have like wrestled with depression at any time in your life?" I've wrestled with serious depression, like, in my teen years. I've I've shared some of my story with you guys. Um, in my opinion, de- a good friend of mine once told me, like, depression is worse than dying in some regards, because it's like this... It's like you're dead, but you're still alive. You know what I'm saying? And, um... It's almost like soul death. Depression is almost like soul death. It's like you're dying inside, but your body is still there. Um, yeah. And... This verse, I just wonder if there isn't like, part of this verse isn't the remedy to depression. I know this has been my experience in my life. Like he says, okay guys, if you do my word, that's life for you. So if, if we're experiencing depression at times, which is like inner, soul, inner death to some degree, getting into his word and doing his word is going to be part of the life process. Eh? Um, what, are, what are some practical things? Um, I, I found personally that when I get focused on myself, And when I live for self-gratification, I get depressed really fast. When I forget that I exist to serve my wife, my daughter, my community, like I just don't want to get up in the morning. You know what I'm saying? And so just remembering like, what's the greatest commandment? Like loving Elohim. And secondly, like loving the people around us, eh? So even that, when we're focused on loving the people around us and serving them, it's going to go a long way towards keeping you far from depression. Uh, that, that's been my experience. And there are, there are other things. You know, Yeshua said, like, cast out demons, like, combat them, resist the devil. Uh, it's something that we do verbally. It's something that we do in prayer. And, uh, you know, when, when we do that, when we do that part of His Word, that can help combat depression, too. That's been my personal experience, you know. Um, so I just look at this verse and I think, man, that's really practical. You know, there's life in His Word. When we do His Word, that's when we'll find real life. Yeah, it reminds me of how Paul talked about the scriptures which are able to impart wisdom to you that will result in salvation. It's like there's like a, a <laughs> flowchart, you know? The scriptures will impart wisdom to you that will ultimately like result in salvation. And I, I'm not teaching salvation by works here, eh? Like Yeshua saved us, Yeshua is saving us, and it's only by grace. But there is that part where like it says, whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. You know, he said, if you confess with your mouth the Master Yeshua, you'll be saved. So it's not like we just, like, go belly up and get all, like, limp and passive, you know? Um, there's very much a part for us in this thing. We pray. We cry out to him in desperation. We confess his name and who he is in prayer. And, uh, and he responds. He comes through for us. Yeah. So, okay, um, then, like, Leviticus, the rest of... Uh, this chapter, it lists all of these forbidden marital unions and uh, sexual expressions. Like, I don't know, if you're squeamish or if you kind of have a Victorian outlook, uh, this chapter will make you squirm. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty explicit. It, it like bans incest and bestiality, a lot of really gross things. And um, you have to remember, like, the Torah is the legislation of Israel, So some of it is, like, really, it's, like, personal devotional material. Some of it is just national law, like, that would stand in a court, right? So, like, incest is forbidden in this chapter, for instance, just like incest is forbidden in uh, the Canadian Criminal Code, right? So some of this is, like, the Israeli Criminal Code, uh, you could say. And sodomy. Yep, for sure. That's one of them in here. here uh, I, was, I was on someone's blog this week. There was this guy, and he was really mad about a pastor named Mark Driscoll um, in Seattle, Washington. Mark Driscoll has like a really big community, and they're really reaching their city for Yeshua. And I love how Yeshua-centered his preaching is. But this, this guy on this blog was really mad because Mark Driscoll actually had the chutzpah to mention lesbians and prostitutes in his sermon. And I guess this guy's like, wife and kids were in the car, and they turned on the Christian radio station, and, and Driscoll was preaching, and he actually mentioned lesbians and prostitutes in a sermon, and this guy's kids heard those words. And he was really mad about that, eh? And I was like, "Ah man, like, do you read the New Testament to your kids? Like there are prostitutes on every second page. Like, you know, Yeshua was like, helping to rescue them and bring them to healing and stuff. So I, I don't know. It was, it was kind of an interesting rant on, on that guy's part um, there's lots of other colorful language too if you're really looking at okay. yeah right i don't know like there, there's some stuff in this chapter where i don't know i could see how parents would maybe almost be a little nervous about their children hearing about it and if anyone's like joining us on the live stream no worries i am going to stay sensitive with this chapter so um, this will be a child friendly sermon just so you know but um but like here, here's something interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 10 to 13 God explicitly says that every seven years, the whole nation goes up to Jerusalem for Sukkot, like the festival of booths, and the the whole Torah is read to the whole nation. And not just the guys, not just the adults. He mentions like the men, the wives, and the kids. So, you know, according to the Torah, this whole thing is to be read even to children, and then actually he explicitly says in Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 to 13, so that, all, so that the children will hear it and learn to fear Yahweh. So I don't know, it's, just, it's an interesting child-rearing perspective that we have in the Torah. You read, you, read, you read through Leviticus 18 and some of the stuff in this chapter that's banned maybe would raise some questions. Your kids would be like, what's that? And I don't know, um, have to figure out what to say, but you know... My point here is just that God says, read the Torah to your kids. Yeah. So, um, 18, verse 6 and on, it lists all of these um, marriages, marital unions that are forbidden. It uses the term, "legalot erva, to uncover nakedness. It's a euphemism for marital relations, right? And um, I'll, read you, I'll read you a blessing from the, from the siddur. So, have, how many of you have been to a Jewish wedding before? I really like Jewish weddings. Um, if you haven't been to one, you're going to, you're going to be at one when Yeshua comes back. So, get ready for that. Um, Yeshua is Jewish and he's coming back. And uh, when you look at how he betrothed his bride to himself at his first coming, there's a very Jewish betrothal. And when he comes back, if you read it in the context of a Jewish wedding, it actually makes a lot of sense. But here's, a, here's, here's, here's one of the prayers that are said at a, uh, at a, a marriage service in the Jewish tradition. Um, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us regarding forbidden unions. So it's saying thank you for... Forbidding certain unions to us, for, who forbade betrothed women to us and permitted women who are married to us through canopy and consecration. Blessed are you, Lord, who sanctifies His people of Israel through canopy and consecration. So, when, so, you know, in this blessing, it just says, blessed are you who has forbidden certain unions to us, is, is the idea. And the inverse is, if some of these are, are off limits, then some are on, on limits, is that a term? And that's entirely available and and, and holy, right? Marriage is a holy thing. Um, Some of these you'd be like, as if that would ever happen, like a guy marrying his father's wife, his stepmother or something, be like, that's just weird. But guess what? In the early Messianic community in Corinth, Paul had to deal with that. Some dude like moved in with his, I don't know what was going on. And um, Paul had to address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Right, and he actually the way he handled that was a very Torah based way of handling it um, in terms of how they applied discipline to that guy Um, then it says like in 18 that's in 18 verse 8 Um, 18 verse 9 it says don't marry your sister or your half sister no da, right Um, we forget very quickly that like our forefather in the faith Abram he married his half sister so that was you know that wasn't allowed after Abram, right? I I don't know if it was a one-time situation or whatever. Um, Then in 18, verse 18, it says, don't marry two sisters. It's smarter to just marry one woman and stay with the one woman, okay? But, you know, in that context, whatever. Um, So don't marry two sisters. Interestingly enough, what did Jacob do? He married two sisters, and it caused him a lot of trouble and heartache um, for everyone, eh? It's just interesting that, like, Abraham and Jacob, like two of our forefathers in the faith, two of the heroes of Israel, both of them had marital unions that later became forbidden. And for good reason. So. And who did the sons of Adam marry? Who did the sons of Adam marry? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe they didn't have the word, they didn't have the Torah, so they, they did what came natural. Yeah. Um, there's one very practical thing here that I think um, should be given more attention in, in the broader believing community. Um, something that's explicitly forbidden is like having relations with your wife when she's on her period. It says that very explicitly in Leviticus 18 verse 19. That's, you know what, that's really considerate of, of our Creator. You know, he, he tells husbands, guys, when your, hus- when your wife is like having her time, give her some space. Show her some respect. I, I appreciate that. There's wisdom in that. And um, unfortunately, when we just throw the law of God out, in the process we throw out a lot of practical wisdom like that. We, we throw out some instructions that are created to help husbands be sensitive. Um, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, um, he mentions this horrible thing where people would actually sacrifice their children to idols. Horrible, horrible. And um, he says doing that really desecrates the name of Yahweh. Like if you say you are one of his people and you do things like that, that's horrible. It reflects very badly on him and on his image, eh? And you know what? Maybe today we don't do that. But in our culture, we do kill our babies before they're born. And it's the, in my opinion, it's the same thing. We're sacrificing our babies on the altar of hedonism, on the altar of career pursuits, on the altar of choice, and it's wrong. So you know what? People did it then, people do it today. It's the same spirit, and it's an offense to, uh, to God's holy name. Um, sometimes, I think, sometimes we as parents, we sacrifice our children, not physically, but we'll maybe kind of sacrifice our relationship with them on the altar of, you know, having a higher income. So, you know, you cart your kids off to the daycare, you get a double-income family, so you can have more toys. And you know what? That's sacrificing our kids too. And we do that in our culture. Um, I, I, I really admire like a lot of homeschooling people that I know where they've said, you know what, God is calling us to be full-time parents and we want to pour ourselves into our kids. We don't want to just send them off to a, a government school and have someone else teach them about life. That's that's our calling, that's our passion, you know, and, and uh, a lot of homeschooling families will, 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 uh, will do that, and, and I really admire that. I mean, I come from a homeschooling family myself, so I, I saw that in action, and I really appreciated the sacrifices that my parents made so that they could, like, answer God's call to really be there and pour into my life, eh? Leviticus 18.22 says that homosexuality, God calls it a toiva, an abomination, um, that, that gets a lot of airtime in, uh, you know, in the Christian community. What doesn't get a lot of airtime is this same word, abomination, is used in reference to eating pork products in Deuteronomy chapter 14. I, I think it is. lists like all of these animals that God says is unclean. And I just think, you know, if we're going to quote some verses from the Old Testament, I think we need to quote all the verses. So if God says that homosexual is an, is an abomination, he's right. But let's, let's also remember that he says that eating swine's flesh is an abomination too, eh? Actually, like, um, sometimes the, uh, the gay rights lobby will say, well, look, you know, in, in responding to the uh, evangelical commu- community, will say, look, you know, the Bible says that eating pork is an abomination, so why do you, why do you condemn us for homosexuality, but you have no problem with bacon? And you know what? They're, they're right. They're pointing out an inconsistency in our approach to the, the Word of God. Either we have to throw, in my opinion, either we have to throw out the law of God or, uh, like, uh, you know, throw out the whole thing or keep the whole thing. But it, it's kind of hard to just take your theological scissors and start cutting out the verses that you don't like. And, you know, some people will say, well, you know, some of it is moral slash ethical and some of it is ceremonial. But uh, that doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't categorize as law. It just says, this is my word. Yeah, and you know, in saying that, we're not, we're not being judgmental, right? We're just, we're reading the Word and we're like, okay, hey, this is what the Creator says. And so like our outlook isn't to be like stigmatize some sins and stay away from people like that. If anything, our approach should be like, you know what? I'm going to befriend that person so that I can show him the Father's love, yeah. right? I mean, Yeshua was a friend of the people that like had social stigmas on them, you know, that the religious community would stay away from. Yeshua would befriended people like that. and There was something about Yeshua that people like that found really attractive. So, you know, um, if Yeshua lived in PA today, what would, he be, what would he be famous for? Maybe he'd be like, yeah, he's the, he's the guy who hangs out with the homosexual community a lot. You know, he's the buddy with a lot of gay guys. I mean, I don't know. Could it be? Um, that just, that's something. So, you know, like our, our objective... As disciples of Yeshua, it isn't to go out there and be like, you should change this and you need to um, improve in that area. Our objective is to show people the Father's love and to let them know the gospel, right? It's like when you meet Yeshua, stuff starts to change. He will begin to transform you from the inside out. He will bring health in the areas where he wants to, right? So that's our job. Our job isn't to change people. Our job is just to shine and show people Yeshua's love, and then he, he, he does the rest, right? So, you know, if we're, as we're talking about this, I just, I, I want to say that. That's our, that's our outlook. Leviticus 18, it finishes by saying that, you know, people who engage in these actions, like um, killing your children, um, having relations with your wife when um, she's having her period, um, you know, people who engage in homosexual acts, that stuff, like, the earth literally finds it revolting. I don't know how this works, but it says literally, like, the earth like, it uses the verb to vomit. That's, that's a pretty extreme term. But he says, like, the earth literally will, like, wants to puke when you do stuff like that. Like, even the creation, it seems, has some sense of righteousness, hey? And so these, these Canaanite nations, like, they were just reveling in all this garbage and doing all this stuff, and, and, you know, Yahweh reached this point where he said, okay, the earth is, like, literally puking these people out of that country. And, um, you know what's scary? That... That applies to any nation, including the Jewish people in Israel. You know, um, homosexuality, abortion. Like, Israel has the highest abortion rate in the world per capita. you realize that? And, like, Israel is called by the name of the God of Israel. And, you know what? It's not like the Jewish people are higher than anybody else, or like he plays favorites. The, 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 the judge of the universe doesn't. So, you know, our hearts can be to pray for repentance for national Israel um, That his love would reach the Jewish people in Israel Because seriously, sometimes I'm scared for Israel You know, it's like when you do the stuff that he, the Canaanites were doing It's like you're, you're heading towards a national demise So, you know, let's, let's be praying for the nation of Israel um, You know what, I, 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 I'm going to go here Jeremiah was like a real prophet, right? But if he was around today saying the stuff he was saying, he would be written off as an anti-Semite, as like an anti-Zionist, as not a real prophet. Because he was like, guys, if you don't turn around and start doing what's right, the Babylonians are going to come in and they're just going to like massacre the nation. They're going to they're cart us all off, they're going to destroy the temple. And I mean, really, like, can you imagine if a prophet said that today? I mean, that's, that's, that's a serious message. And so, you know, it just... Our response can be to pray, to really pray. Okay, in, in the book of Acts chapter 5, it says that God exalted Yeshua to his right hand. That's a really special place, eh? Like Yeshua sits at the Father's right hand. He's like his right hand man, right? God exalted him to that place so that he could give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. So, you know, ask Yeshua to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's look at Ephesians together also. So I don't know, hopefully we were able to dig in and get some meaningful and and relevant things out of those chapters in Leviticus. Leviticus is fun, hey? Like, you don't just get, like, you can't just read Leviticus and get spoon-fed. Like, you've got to dig in in Leviticus and be like, what is this saying? Like, how does it apply to my life, hey? So I don't know, there's a lot more in there, but hopefully that gives us some things to think about. Yeah, let's look at Ephesians. So Paul uses this analogy. Paul actually used military analogies quite frequently. He, he, he spoke in the language of a soldier quite often, or in the language of a wrestler or a boxer, um, those types of people. And in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, he uses this analogy of, of uh, weaponry, hey? He mentions like a helmet and a sword and a shield. And uh, I, I wish I could find like a real sword. I thought about where I could get one. I didn't know. But I do have, I do have a friend. You have a sword, Hannah? Whoa, you need to bring it sometime. You have to find it, okay. Yeah, it's, it's probably in storage right now, but okay. I, I have two swords. You have two swords, wow. Well, now we know who to go to next time we need a sword or two. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I did talk to a friend of mine who's a knife connoisseur, and he, he gave me a pretty nice double-bladed knife for you all to, to see as an illustration. So I thought it was pretty nice anyway. So maybe while we're... Uh, while we're reading, while we're looking at some stuff in Ephesians, I'll I'll just pass, you can pass this around and look at it if you like knives. I really, I like knives, so I thought it was a pretty sweet one. Um, And it says, somehow, like, like, okay, this is pretty short, right? But it's still a pretty nice blade. And um, if you can imagine something like this, but three feet long, like, Paul says, that's a picture of the Word of God. When you study the Scriptures, and when you quote it, like... That's, it. that's what it's a picture of. So I don't know if any of you want to maybe have a look at that. I don't know if some of you even want to. Knives are kind of scary. You guys want to see that? Just please don't cut yourself on it. <laughs> I had like, <laughs> I, had, I had a folding knife and like Genevieve wanted to see it once and it was really sharp and she cut her hand on it and I felt so bad. So anyway, please don't do that. But anyway, that's, that's a picture Of the word. Alright. Just imagine it about three feet long or something. So. Let's just uh, look through some stuff in Ephesians. For the next ten minutes or so here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ephesians. Chapter four. Verses two and three. Okay, so he says, like, you've been called, so live up to that calling, basically. And then he lists uh, some qualities like humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance. Ouch. That's, those are relational terms, eh? I don't know. I, I, I'm, like, I'm on a quest right now for that. Like, I really want to learn... I really want to reflect Yeshua's humility and His gentleness. I don't know. Are are there times in your life, let's go through these and just think about this. This would be fun. When are the times in your life when you are most prone to not showing humility? humility? Humility, yeah. Like being humble. When you do something great. When you do something great, yeah. What, what? And you're bad, <laughs> mad. oh mad, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, some. I mean, something I've noticed is often I think I think we have a a false definition of humility. Like often we when we think of someone humble, we think of a doormat or a pushover or a pansy or someone who kind of walks around like looking at the ground, someone who's weak. But um, that, scripturally that isn't humility. Like it's possible to be a strong person. It's possible to be confident and assertive. And also be very humble. Um, here, here's, here's, here's my thought on humility. I think humility is listening and believing, listening to him and, and believing, like believing God. Because you know, like when we don't believe him, that's like sheer arrogance, eh? But when we just believe him, that's like the most humble thing we can do. It's kind of maybe the heart of it. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that book also, Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. If you haven't read it, I. I, it comes with my oh, recommendations yeah, uh, too. Hessian. H e s s. yeah. H yeah. e s s i o n. Really Hessian. Um, gentleness. Are there times? What are the times in your life when you're most prone to not being gentle? I'll, I'll share with you mine. Um, when someone's a jerk. <laughs> I really like. Yeah. Like. Okay. Like. I. I. It's very hard for me to stay gentle and humble. Seriously. Like. I have a lot of friends on Facebook, and there are lots of conversations on my wall. And sometimes people will, like, write things that are just rude. And at that moment, I was like, I want to verbally body slam this person right now, right? And for me, anyway, Facebook is, like, the place where I've learned a lot about being gentle. Because it's, it's, you know what, it's... The challenge is being gentle with someone whom you can't see, who wrote something and who's there... But they're there over the internet, you know. For me, anyway, that's that's the place where like it's a challenge to be gentle. Um, it's probably different for each one of us. I'll give you a tip: don't publicly don't publicly rebuke someone. Send them a message. Yeah, it's it's better. Yeah, for sure. Actually, it, maybe that's why Paul said in Galatians six: like if you're if you're going to someone who's sinning or whatever, like do it in a spirit of gentleness. Maybe that's why he said that. Hey. Yeah, and then um, talks about like patience and tolerance in here too. Hey Genevieve, could I share, could I share a, a story about an area where I'm learning about that? <laughs> okay, like, like from this morning? Okay, so um, I, I had a shirt that I liked and Genevieve shrunk my shirt in the dryer. And, oh yeah, for sure. And then and, and, and there, was, there was another shirt that I liked and she shrunk it and then there was another one. There were a couple of them, right? And it was over the course of, like, four years. So, I mean, she has an amazing success rate. So, it's like, she only shrinks one of my shirts, like, every year or whatever, right? But, it's, I don't know, like, for somehow that happened and, I like, I don't know, like, all of, my, all of my garbage came up, right? Like, all of myself and the part of me that would be materialistic is, like, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd want to get mad or frustrated. And it's like, I, I was really, I was thanking the Father for that situation albeit through gritted teeth for a little bit, because, like, for me, I was like, wow, I can actually, like, I don't know, reflect Yeshua's heart right now, I hope. Please, Father, you know, like, like, I don't know. It's like patience is easy until you, like, do life with people. I don't know if you do. If you don't do life with people, like if you're kind of a lone maverick in your faith, then you're always gentle. You're always humble. You're always patient. You're always everything, right? But as as soon as you get in close quarters with people and start doing life with people, it's like all your garbage comes up, and and actually the father gets to (laughs) (laughs) come to your office. Hey Adam, yeah. So, so I I I appreciate that. Yeah Greg. Buy a larger shirt. What's that? Buy a larger shirt. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> it's so easy. It's a material, it's going to buy a bigger shirt. Good deal. I'd <laughs> say yeah. buy pre-shrunk shirts. Right on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Everything in Value Village is pre-shrunk. That's good. Um, then he also talks about shalom, in you know peace, in verse three. He says like um, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. Like, so we have spiritual unity, right? And where there's shalom, that's when that's preserved. And like, so, you know, really try to do that. And um, I like that. He also mentioned shalom in like Ephesians 6. He says the gospel, like the message of Messiah, it's a message of shalom. So like shalom with the creator, inner shalom, and shalom with the people around you to whatever degree you, it's up to you, eh? So I, I appreciate that. Like, that's the good news. That's the message that we bear to the world. The gospel of of shalom, uh, of peace. Um, In Ephesians 4.11, he lists these different job descriptions in the body of Messiah. He lists like apostles or emissaries, uh, prophets or spokesmen um, and spokeswomen, um, evangelists, and then pastor-teachers. And uh, some people call this the fivefold ministry because there are five job descriptions here. Uh, if you look at the last one, pastors and teachers, in the Greek it's more like a single thing. So I would actually call this the fourfold ministry. And it's actually cool. Like the prophets of Israel, sometimes they'd have visions of the throne itself and Yahweh on the throne. And around the throne were these four like massive beasts. Like the Hebrew word is chayot. It means something that's like a living thing, right? And um, they're really quite fantastic. He said like in the visions like in Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and in the book of Revelation, like one of these things had a face like a lion and one had a face like an eagle and one had a face like an ox and then one had a face like a man. And when you look at these four job descriptions, apostle and prophet and evangelist, they actually line up really well with those with what those animals represent. Like, apostles correspond to lions, um, prophets correspond to eagles, evangelists correspond to oxen, and, um, down there. Oh, Slow sorry, down there. Hannah, yeah. Uh, lions Slow me down. Yeah. Eagles. Prophets. Prophets. Um, oxen, evangelists, because there's a lot of power there. Evangelists often do works of power to prove to people that who God is and that he's real. And, um, and then man, a man would they correspond to pastors and teachers because they're you know kind of relational, often more human, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And anyway, so these guys, these four like job descriptions. They uh, their job description in verse twelve is to equip the the saints, like Messiah's holy army, for work. Equipping the body of Messiah for work. What kind of work? The work of service. So, you know, often today, like, we have pastors, and pastors are kind of expected to fill all of those roles often, and they're expected to do the, quote, work of the ministry. But according to Ephesians, like, the the work of a pastor in these other roles is to equip the people in their communities to do the work of the ministry. Because, like, every one of us is on the front lines, hey? So it's kind of like we gather as a community, we get equipped, we get, you know, we get strengthened and encouraged, and then we go back to the front lines. So that, we can, so that we can serve. That's the idea there, eh? Yeah, and uh, Paulist's two results. When these roles are active in the body of Messiah, um, he mentions unity and he mentions maturity. So the role of, like, for instance, apostles and prophets, when they're active in the body of Messiah, they're there to bring the body to unity and to maturity. Um, I'll, share, I'll share my personal opinion with you on the, on the Christian and the Jewish sides. Sometimes I feel that denominational superstructures replace the job of apostles and prophets. Often in a denomination you have pastors, and then you have a regional overseer, and you have Bible, Bible school. But you know, apostles and prophets, that's just kind of out of our realm. You know what I'm saying? And, and I feel like we're missing out. If, if, we, if, uh, if the way we do our faith is primarily denominational, I, I fear that maybe we're missing out sometimes. Maybe there isn't room for apostles and prophets. Um, on the Jewish side, with, uh, with Judaism as it's evolved in the last 2,000 years, your, your, your head honchos in Judaism are rabbis. And rabbis, in, in some regards, the Orthodox Jewish system is designed to not need prophets and not need apostles. Um, it's the way it is. There's this story in tra- Jewish tradition where, like, where they say basically if there are like a thousand rabbis and they say this and they ha- have this opinion, and there are a thousand prophets and they're actually speaking for God, it doesn't matter what the prophets say, the rabbis are right. Is essentially what that says. So, you know, I, I, I personally feel that in both religions, in Christianity and Judaism, there's some things that we have to leave behind. So that we can move into like operating with real apostles and prophets. And I want to see that. I really want to see that. Is yeah. almost on the rabbi to consider the words of the prophet to see whether those things the prophet says are true? Um, well, there hasn't been room in Judaism for the prophetic gifting for almost 2,000 years. Basically like the prophets in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, that's prophet, those are the prophets and that's kind of a closed book, eh? So, that's kind of the idea there. Right. Ex- that's excellent, yeah. Okay, um, let's. What's that? I just said yay, I'm okay. Missionaries kids know more than me. Yeah. So, that's why God made me a great... semi school, I had freedom them. Right on. Yeah. Okay, let's 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 touch on two more things. In Ephesians chapter five, verse eighteen. Um, this is what Paul says in Ephesians five, eighteen. He says, um, don't drink wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Don't say don't get drunk with wine the That's right. Wine. That's kind of a game I play with our congregation, Kathy. I, I deliberately misread verses. Just wine to see if people will catch beer. me. back then, wasn't the wine not very strong in alcohol? drunk it because... good. Yeah, because the water was no good. The wine is <laughs> safe to drink and the said it's okay to have wine you Okay, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But if wine was non-alcoholic in that time, then why would Paul say don't get drunk with it because you wouldn't be able to... So anyway, I just, I just. What's, what's that? Yeah, that's true. Here, here's an interesting thought. Why, why did Yeshua have a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard? Was he? No, he wasn't. Yeshua was Yeshua wasn't a glutton. He didn't overeat, but you can tell that he must have really enjoyed a good party and a good meal sometimes. Like he knew how to fill up, or people wouldn't have labeled him a, a glutton. Why? 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 Did, why was Yeshua labeled? Yeah. Okay, why was Yeshua labeled a drunkard? Did Yeshua ever get hammered? No, of course he didn't, because that's a sin. And um, Yeshua didn't sin. But could it be that he, he spent time with people like that? And I don't know, could it be that he did occasionally drink some alcohol? Yeah, of course. Um, that's part of Jewish, Jewish culture. But there's, um, here's, here's an interesting statistic, though. Jewish people have an extremely low rate of alcoholism. Do you know why that is? It's because... That's not true. Okay. They have the highest rate in the world. Okay. I think we must have read some different statistics. Would no. you mean getting drunk or drinking alcohol? No. Alcoholics themselves. the alcoholic ratio in the world. Really? Where did you read that? the second one is France. Okay. Okay, well, um, uh, from what I know of... Okay, hold on, hold on. I, I, I don't know about that, Hannah, because like, from everything I've seen of the Jewish world, there's a pretty low rate, and I've read some pretty good statistics. We can differ on that. I'd be happy to differ. But the point is, in the Jewish world, there's a place for alcohol, but it's not for self-gratification. It's, it's, It's like generally drunk in a holy context. So, you know, you begin the Sabbath, um, you have a glass of wine, and you bless God for it, and it helps make Shabbat special. Um, There's like, there's a place for it, right? And and that place isn't to be abused. And the Nazarites were another social class that were teetotalers, and that that was a very respectable thing. So I think, you know, in this whole discussion, we can just conclude with Paul. He said, you know what? I really go out of my way to make sure that I don't offend anyone or cause anyone to stumble. I'm free, but I serve people with that freedom, right? So that's the, that's the idea. I, we want to err on the side of not causing people to stumble, right? We have, you know, each one of us has our own level of personal conviction or whatever about that. Right. Okay, let's, let's just finish with this thought. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that the relationship between a husband and wife is actually a picture. It's a picture of... Of our relationship as the bride with Yeshua as our groom, who betrothed us to Himself and who is coming back for us for the biggest Jewish wedding in history. <laughs> I like the Jewish wedding theme. I never really thought of that until today. But anyway, he gives a couple. He gives a couple of practical instructions. Um, let's start with the husbands. He says, like in verse twenty-five, he says, "Okay, husbands, love your wives as Messiah loved the congregation and." gave himself up for her um i haven't even been married for four years so i don't feel like i'm qualified to teach on this but i can look at it and maybe share a thing or two that i've been learning on the journey um i you know i really admire some of you guys have been married for a long time and i i I really admire how you treat your wives um so i don't even feel like i i'm qualified to really teach this but we could look at it together for a second um he sa- it says in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. And that Hebrew word means to make something special, hey? Eh? So it's like Yeshua has made you as his bride special. And, you know, on, in, in, on a marriage level, how can we as husbands tell our, our brides that they are special? How can we make them feel special? Um, just kind of breaking down this idea. Um, then in, in verse, t- in the next thing he says is like, Yeshua cleansed us as his bride, by washing us with the water of the Word. So, you know, if you're ever just feeling dirty inside or gross or dead, just open the Word and let Yeshua wash your soul with the water of His Word. That's the idea. Um, in a marriage context, you know, when we as husbands can just share what we're reading in the Bible with our wives, share with them insights that we have, um, pray with our wives, that's washing your wife with, with the water uh, of the Word. It's a picture of what Yeshua does uh, for all of us Then he also uses two verbs, nourishing and cherishing. Nourishing is like feeding, right? And um, you know, in 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 the marriage covenant, in the Jewish uh, wedding document, the ketubah, a husband promises to provide food for his wife to nourish her. On a deeper level, like you know, Yeshua nourishes us with His Word. That's something that we all experience. And in a marriage, a husband can ask himself, like, how can I nourish my wife? How can I nourish her mentally? How can I nourish her emotionally? How can I nourish her spiritually? You know it might be like um, there are, there are tons of creative and also traditional ways of doing that i 'm not going to go into all the details yeah, maybe that 's about doing the cooking that 's what it 's about. The husband nourishing his wife means There's to do the people cooking and to feed her hopefully uh. Hopefully ordering in pizza qualifies for for that. Yeah, and then the other one, cherishing. That means to value someone, right? So, I mean, so, you know, each each one of us is Yeshua's bride. We can hear that, like, He values you. He cherishes you. You are, you are very precious to Him. And, you know, He shows us, e- each of us, that in so many ways. And in the marriage context, like, we husbands can be asking too, how can I tell my wife that I value her? How can I show her that I... How precious she is to me, you know? You know what? A simple thing to do is just say thank you. Think of all the stuff you can thank your wife for. Just normal stuff that maybe you would think, you know, she's supposed to do that. It's her job, you know? No, oh, thank her for it anyway. It's, it's one simple way of, of saying, I appreciate you. Um, then the wives, it's kind of like, there are all these things that Paul says for the husband, and then actually he doesn't have as much to say for the wives. He's like, for the wives, he's like, you know, um, be subject to your husbands as to the master. So... It's, you know, it's that picture of we as the bride and our relationship with Yeshua. That's the picture uh, with a husband and a wife. Um, Not yet, actually. And then he says, um, he repeats himself in verse 24. And then then he goes on in verse 32 to also say, uh, see to it that the wife respects her husband. So that's pretty basic, eh? Yeah. Respecting, like, means to take seriously. And... uh, for, for, okay here, here's something from both sides um you know sometimes we husbands will be like you know what i'm having a really hard time loving my wife right now she's just making me really mad and stressing me out and you know husbands feel like that sometimes sometimes wives will be like i'm having a really hard time respecting my husband right now he's doing things that i think are dumb or or whatever you know um but you know what it's still true paul still said love your wife respect your husband and here's, here's the challenge. Like, this is true with parents also. We talked about this a couple months ago. God said, honor your father and your mother. You know what? Your dad might be in prison doing life for murder. Your mom might be, like, an upper-level witch in a satanic co- coven. And you know what? It doesn't matter. You can still honor your parents. You don't have to honor what they've done. You can honor their position. Because that position was created by God. So, you know... Um, it doesn't matter if my parents or if your parents have failed you you can still honour that position of father and mother. It's also true in a marriage you know, you can simply honour the position of wife and love that position even if maybe on a human level things are not perfect and you know, a wife, and correlatively a wife can, can respect her husband maybe some of the things he does are things that she disagrees with or whatever but a wife can respect her husband's position because that is a picture of Yeshua and his relationship as our husband. So, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I would say on a practical level. And I mean, really, seriously, when it comes to some basic things in here about, okay, like, I'm a husband, right? When I read it, like, Paul's just saying, love your wife and all of these things, like, I can't do that on my own. Seriously, like, I am an empty shell. I can get really mad. Um, I'm a very arrogant person, um, really. And being married just brings that all up, right? And I think that's where the gospel comes in. Like, seriously, I don't know how people stay together who don't know Yeshua. There is a high divorce rate. It makes a lot of sense. But seriously, like, because Yeshua makes all the difference in a relationship. Like, Genevieve and I will pray together some mornings and we'll be having a hard time. And, I'll, and I'm like, man, does that ever drive me to the Yeshua? be like, Yeshua, I pray that you'd continue to save us. I pray that you continue to make my heart new. I pray that you'd continue to give me your humble heart, you know? You shed your blood to redeem my marriage, to make it a marriage that honors God and that reflects His glory. And I'm putting all of my stock in that right now, that you shed your blood so this could happen, you know? And re- and He's the one who pulls off the redemption, right? He's the one who does the salvation. Our job is to ask Him, to cry out to Him, and then to cooperate with Him as He does it. That That's how I see it. That's... That's what I'm learning. Like, I, I, can't, I can't speak authoritatively on this, but th- that's been my experience so far in the less than four years that we've been married. Something I appreciate too is the Bible. The Bible says to be angry, eh? It says be angry and don't just, sin. Just, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. So, I mean, that's, that's applicable in any relationship. You know? it, so what what is that saying there? It's saying like, you know what, if you're angry... Okay, I I guess that's something I've learned. Like, when I'm mad, it's not the time necessarily to talk about it. Sometimes I need to, like, just go and cool off and let my emotions subside and then talk about it when it's not in the heat of the moment, you know? And maybe that's what he's saying. Be angry, but don't sin. And you know what? Resolve the thing. Hopefully before the day is over. You know, before you go to bed that night, if you have issues with somebody, don't let it smolder. Don't let it turn into a grudge. Don't stuff your anger. Acknowledge that you're angry because, you know, it says to be angry. There are times when you'll be, be mad. But then what are you going to do with it, eh? So, um, I saw a hand going up. Well, my, my grandpa's like a in, a, in his prime, he was like a massive strapping Ukrainian farmer. He's like a little shorter and not as strapping now, but, you know, he, he's always been free to cry and I've really admired that about my grandpa. You know, like being from an Eastern European family, men, men cry and it's a good thing. Salaam, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.